This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor and Senior Economist to WisdomTree, Jeremy Siegel. Our discussion today is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. We're going to have a very special broadcast for you today. We're going to get Professor Siegel's reaction to the Fed and the market activity and then we're going to play a recording from the Future Proof Conference. I was out in California. I, I highly recommend people attend this conference. There's about 3,000 people attending. Uh, and there was a lot of really great conversations. We recorded our show live from Future Proof. You're going to hear JC Peretz from All Star Charts on his view of the technicals and uh, the CEO of Halo about structured notes and some new model portfolios that we are collaborating on together. Uh, but for first, we're going to turn it over to Professor Siegel for some comments on the Fed. Well, it's always great to get the professor's reaction to the Fed. He's been one of the the harsh critics of the Fed, but also one of the real insightful forecasters. Uh, If you haven't been listening to our weekly show, Behind the Markets, you would have heard a very good prediction of what was going to happen today. I think he hit it spot on. But, Professor, let's get your current read from the Fed, what you heard, what you saw, uh, and and the market track. Right. Well, you know, we are near the top of the hill. The, 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 the hill didn't get any higher. The thing is, uh, the hill kind of turned into a plateau rather than a uh, downside on the other side. So, you know, taking away uh, two rate in, uh, decreases next year, that's what upset the market. I think most people were thinking of one, uh, you know, a few were thinking of two, but two uh, rate decreases instead of 100 basis points at the end of 2024, uh, 50. Now, again, I, I maintain they don't really know. It depends absolutely on the evolution of the economy, uh, on what is actually happening. Also, you know, the, the fact is that uh, a majority of them still think one more increase, either in November or December. But I think what really um, sort of uh, woke up the market was we're going to stay higher for longer. There's just no question. Um, uh, he talked about the neutral rate of interest. That's the rate of interest consistent with uh, 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 2% inflation and either expansionary or contractionary. And he talked about that becoming higher. And I we've talked about that on our show uh, for two months, that the uh, 0.5% real rate, uh, uh, which is 2.5% Fed funds, given the strength of the economy that I've seen, that neutral rate may have to go up to one and one and a half percent. When you look at the dot plot, they're still looking at that neutral rate at a half point six percent. But you see the skewness. There's three or four uh, participants that have raised it 100 basis points. So that's not the consensus yet. So it uh, we have shifted into an economy where higher rates are going to be the norm. We talked about some of the reasons faster growth. Uh, by the way, one thing which I think is uh, kind of shocking in a way, in the June, they forecasted growth for 2023 at 1.0 percent. 
Now we're only three months later and they raised it to 2.1%. That shows you how far off they can be in even seeing the growth. So they've, by over 100%, they've raised the GDP growth rate of for this year um, in three months. And that's a source of, my goodness, if it can grow this fast, GDP can grow this fast with these real rates, then I think real rates are going to have to stay higher longer. Now, again, they are data dependent. We see big deteriorations coming in. Uh, it, it will show. We have now begun, you know, that Home Builders Index, which had soared up about 30 percent from the big plunge it took, uh, it has uh, lost half of its uh, increase in the last two months. We saw housing starts well below expectations. We see uh, the commitment on a zero point uh, 30 year fixed mortgage is actually going to 7.6 percent. Um, it's hard to believe that's not going to uh, affect the housing. Big wild card, as we know, is the oil increases. Um, because if you're a bondholder, you don't just care about core inflation. You care about all inflation. And, uh, you know, you know, the fact that oil remains firm. Now, if I take a look right now, I'm trying to spot it on my uh, uh, on what we got in terms of WTI at 90. Well, it's down one percent. One Brennan and WTI are down about one percent today. But we know that has been a soaring feature uh, in the market. It's going to cut down on purchasing power. Uh, it is definitely going to cause a rise in inflation. And uh, uh, that's why the the uh, inflation overall inflation rate for this year, actually projection went up from last year. So, um, you know, uh, yeah, it hurts higher duration assets more as this real rate rises. I'm taking a look right now at the uh, 10 year tips. Uh, Jeremy, I see the 10 year tips at 2.03% on my screen. And um, I have not seen it above 2% before. That's that. Uh, it may have tipped there a, a little bit, but that is definitely a challenge. Faster GDP growth, a poor hedge on bonds of of the inf uh, for the inflation fight. Um, stocks are really outpacing bonds this year, and I think stocks can still do well this year. Even though, if you worry about inflation, you want to hedge, and if you want to hedge, the long term hedge that you want. Uh, is definitely going to be the the stock market. So I I, I think actually the ramifications of staying in this five percent range uh, much longer um, is going to it's it's going to kind of wake up a lot of people. What should you do with your funds? Are banks going to wake up? Can they afford to pay five percent? Because everyone's going to do a year end review of a financial advisor and every financial advisor is saying, why do you have, you know, $200,000 stuck in your 1% uh, savings account at this bank? And, um, you know, there's going to be, uh, there's going to be a lot of shifting out. Uh, another, you know, another reason why I think Russell 2000 has been relatively weak, the lending costs of small firms because of the pinch on deposits is, is really, uh, you know, hurting those small companies more than large. This is something I pointed out right away after SVB failed, that it would be the small firms hurt more. And that's, you know, we do like the the small stocks and we do like their valuation, but they're facing an even more challenging rate environment uh, than the big stocks who, uh, yeah, they cost more, but at least they can get it uh, at, at this uh, more costly rate. 
Well, thanks, Professor Siegel. And we'll be back with our conversation live from Future Proof. Here we're doing a special episode of Behind the Markets live from the Future Proof Festival. Great conference, great time, really a way to do these conferences. And JC, Matt, thanks for joining me here on stage for Behind the Markets. Thank you. Yeah, it's great. We're going to have a, a real interesting conversation. So with JC, we're going to talk a little bit about the market setup, what's happening now, how he thinks about the markets, and then we're going to go into how to implement things with, with, with Halo Investing and their structured node platform. There's going to be some interesting, I think, breaking news today on collaboration between Wisdom Tree and Halo. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, but also on what, how to use structure notes in a model. But JC, looking at the charts, give us your background on how you think about technical analysis informing you where we are and how you approach the markets. Sure. Well, this is great. Thanks, guys. Fantastic. Huntington Beach is beautiful. So we approach the market. When we look back at history, one thing that we know for a fact is that asset prices trend, right? We know that it's you can go back and you can see markets going, stocks going up for a while, they go sideways for a while, they go down for a while, but we know they trend, right? There's a zillion white papers. I'm sure Nick could point you to them for those of you who read white papers, but there's plenty of them. Uh, so if we know that, then we're going to spend the majority of our time looking for trends. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're uptrends. They could be sideways trends. They could be downtrends as well. We know that for a fact. So we're going to try to use that to that wisdom uh, to our uh, see what I did there uh, to our advantage as as best as possible. So and when we talk about trends, it's not just at the index level, like the S&P 500 or the Dow or the Nasdaq 100, but the components that make up those indexes and understanding what stocks and sectors are driving those particular indexes and the differences between them. The Nasdaq 100 composition is going to be very different than the New York Stock Exchange composite or the Russell 2000, right? So it's a market of stocks. And when we look at the market of stocks, the new 52-week lows list peaked in the summer of 2022. So in other words, as bad as things were, the worst things were was last summer, June in particular. And you can even argue that we were already seeing some strength underneath the surface earlier in Q2 last year, but it really was as bad as it got. And then from there, things just got progressively better. In the back half of last year, the leading sectors off the lows were things like industrials, consumer discretionary uh, was doing well, and even financials were doing pretty well. It was really those growth areas, technology, that, that wasn't participating in that rally, particularly the mega cap growth. And then the market got that rotation at the beginning of the year. And sector rotation is the lifeblood of a bull market. That's what should have happened in a strong market environment. And historically speaking, going into a pre-election year, after, around midterms, you buy stocks. It's the sweet spot. Best time ever to own stocks. And what do you know? Stocks did great, right? The NASDAQ got started off to the best first six months of the year ever during a time where it should have done well. So the market was acting perfectly normal. And then heading into Q3 of those pre-election years, we tend to see uh, the market struggle some, churn some. Stock Traders Almanac here, Jeff Hurst, shout out, right? The best in the business. And he'll tell you, you know, this is perfectly normal market behavior. In fact, if the market wasn't behaving like this, that would actually be very unusual. So the market is just consolidating gains. And then when you look at, I'll, I'll pass the mic, but when you, when you look at what's driving these indexes, you look at technology as a sector index, it's back to the 2021 highs. And now we're failing here again. 
Semiconductors, back to the 2021 highs. And we're failing here, again. Industrials, same thing. Home builders, same thing. These are very, very important sectors and industry groups for this market. And we're literally back to the prior cycle's peak from the end of 2021. So the most important areas are, are stuck below overhead supply during a, a time of the year where markets should struggle. And that's exactly what's happening. And I, I think that uh, we should probably get pretty comfortable with this because I don't think it's going to end anytime soon at the index level. But I continue to think that there are going to be stocks and, and, and particularly industry groups that can do very, very well in this environment, despite the indexes kind of just churning sideways and frustrating both the longs and shorts. You look at things, look at oil, you know, we're recording, what day is it today? September 12th. September 12th. And oil is pushing 90 bucks. You know, these energy stocks have been outperforming for quite some time. They don't care what semiconductors are doing. They're going to do their own thing. So, and I I think there are other areas uh, like in materials and things like that, that have very low or no weighting at all in these indexes. And these stocks are ripping. So I hate to say it's a stock picker's market. Right. Just punch me in the face whenever I say that. But if there was ever one of those, this is kind of it. Right. So let's talk about this presidential cycle, because this is a very strange political season. Um, Maybe one of the stranger election seasons we've seen. How do you think it plays out next year? All the headlines back and forth in terms of where we're going. Yeah. um, I mean, listen, I I don't know much about politics, but they all all these elections seem pretty strange to me. So, um, Again, there's no it's it's not perfect. Nothing is. But from a seasonality standpoint and not just the four year presidential cycle, uh, but just throughout the year as as humans, we 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 behave in different ways in different times of the year. We hang out with different people. We wear different clothes. We go to different places. Right. Whether it's the holidays or the summer. It's just different. And if you think that those changes in our behaviors are not impacting the decisions that we're making in the market, I guess you don't know humans, right? We're, we're, we're going to behave in similar ways. And it's not like, oh, sell in May and go away, sell everything. No, no. For me, the bigger signal is when the market ignores seasonal tendencies, right? So the fact that the market ripped, S&Ps were up 7.5% in the fourth quarter last year up another 7% or so in the first quarter this year, another 8 or so percent in the second quarter. In bear market, stocks don't go up every quarter, first of all. Second of all, that's perfectly normal. Markets should have done well. And now we're supposed to struggle historically and then rip into the end of the year, holidays, November, December. Best three-month period of the year is that November through January sweet spot. Look at me. Come on, Jeff Hirsch, right? Look at this guy. Come on. I'm here regurgitating all the things that I've learned uh, from Jeff over the years. And, uh, but it's so true. So if the market, for example, let's say the market is, uh, would be strong right now and not struggling uh, at the index level, that would be a signal. That would be evidence of, of strength despite a seasonally weak time. The indexes aren't doing well. They're struggling like they should. So no signal. So if they don't rip into the holidays and rip into the beginning of the year and are actually falling and making new lows, that would be very worrisome for the overall market. That would be the market ignoring that seasonal strength. What, what do you think about the bond stock correlation? So last year, bond stocks were majorly down together. We've got rates creeping back higher right now. Uh, is that going to affect the tech stocks? Should it affect the tech stocks in, in your 
intermarket analysis? Yeah, probably. You know, the, there's there's great data out there. Jim Bianco, shout out Jim Bianco, uh, puts out great data going back to, he's speaking of Chicago, going back to, you know, 40s and 50s. And the correlation between stocks and bonds tends to be lean positive when inflation is the concern in the market and turns negative when deflation is the concern. So we've seen that negative correlation for quite some time now because the overall worry was the deflation. But when you're in an inflationary cycle, that relationship flips, as we've seen, rather than the defensive uh, uh, vehicle that bonds have been for the majority of at least my career, right? Last year, when stocks, bonds were selling off even harder, right? Because bonds were getting crushed, interest rates are ripping. So anything long duration, anything technology growth, things that aren't going to earn any money for a long time are getting slaughtered, right? So that correlation between stocks and bonds is, is much more positive than it has ever been in my career. But when you go back to other periods where inflation was the concern, you saw similar behavior. But now we also had a period where bonds were crazily priced. So you had tips yields at negative one and a half percent. So there was no real compensation. I mean, it's a different story when the 10 year tips is 2% when the 10 year tips is one and a half negative, you know, so I think it'll be interesting. Is the compensation for bonds becoming like the insurance risk asset of choice? Like there was a premium you paid for bonds because it was this insurance asset, but it lost that when you were paying, when you're giving the government one and a half percent a year after inflation. So it's, it's, I think it's going to come back as a hedge. But it, this question of the correlation is definitely an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not big on hedging. You know, if you like something, own it. If you don't, don't own it. You know, for most investors, a lot of investors don't have to, you know, do worry too much about hedging. Like if, uh, you know, like I, I look at the long only uh, fund community, right? A lot of, lot of assets there. And the big question that we've been asking ourselves, and that's the whole thing. It's not that technical analysis gives us all the answers, but technical analysis and understanding market trends really goes a long way in helping us ask the right questions. So I think this question right here where we haven't seen a defensive rotation in the equities market into consumer staples, right, into the low volatility stocks that you tend to see when there is a flight to safety and money is coming out of equities, you tend to see that outperformance out of low volatility and consumer staples, we haven't seen it. So the argument is that money's going into bills. It doesn't need to go into staples. I don't necessarily buy that. I don't think so. Um, I guess we'll see. But I look at the lack of rotation into those defensive sectors as further evidence that this is just a consolidation at the index level that will ultimately break out versus the beginning of something bigger, right? Every big move starts with a little move, but not every little move turns into a big one. So the question is, is, th is this the big one? You know, I haven't seen any evidence of that. I haven't seen it in credit spreads either. Look at high yields, credit spreads as tight as they've been all year. So you're not seeing that traditional defensive rotation. And then the pushback, fine, is that, well, JC, none of those things had bills paying all this. All right, I guess we'll see. I don't think so. Matt, we're going to bring you in for a lot more conversation in the second half. But sure. just to... What is your thoughts on all you've heard from JC so far about the current market dynamics, what you're seeing from some of your clients on the Halo platform? Yeah, no, fascinating and, and, and fabulous comments there. And I, you know, I think from our perspective at Halo, right, I think it's uh, it's really interesting, right? You talk about the trends, which, which are undeniable, right? 
uh, and that's followed down by the irrationality, right, of, of many of the investors. And I know as advisors, many of you out there in the in the audience today, you deal with this on a day to day basis, right? And so, you know, I'm not up here to debate right or wrong, but I, I would like just to highlight the fact that it's complicated, right? Because there is a timing to all this, and so uh, to me, it, it speaks to the opportunity to make sure that. You know, tool sets are in place to make sure individuals are in the market, right, aligned with their goals, they stay invested, right, and quite frankly, to, to you know, I'll say immunize them a little bit, right, from just the timing of these trends and when and how they ultimately end up affecting the, the end investor in their portfolio. Right. It's super complicated. Right. Uh, and, you know, again, it's it's one of those things where I'm sure each and every one of these individuals in the audience here has a perspective, maybe a line, maybe slightly different. Uh, and so, you know, I think for us, it's it's really about you know empowering, uh, you know, advisors and, and clients with the tools they need to capitalize right appropriately on those trends, manage risks where they can. And, but most importantly, you know, get invested and, and, and stay invested. I will say I'm happy with our turnout at 8 a.m. So shout to the audience for coming up this early in the morning after a good late night. They came to see you, Jeremy. Of course. Um, (laughs) JC, let's come back to one of the things you've been writing about that that I retweet all the time uh, is the stuff on the dollar versus the S&P. And and you talk about how you you mentioned not wanting to hedge just like things when when you like them. But how does the dollar come into your view for the S&P? Because it's something I do in my research as well. But but talk about how how you think there's an interrelation between the dollar and the S&P. I mean, that's been the signal. If you ignore everything else on this planet and you just watch the dollar and you did what the opposite of what the dollar was doing in the equities market, you'd be doing great. That's all you needed. That's all you needed. When the dollar's been going up, stocks are under pressure. When the dollar goes down, stocks rip. That's it. You know, it, and it really, and correlation was like, well, Jay-Z, in the 90s, it wasn't like that. Well, it ain't the 90s. It's 2023. I get it. In the 90s, it was not like that. Things were very different in the 90s, right? The dollar has, as it turns out, was the only safe haven all along. Last year, equities are getting slaughtered in the first half. What happened to bonds? Slaughtered even more. Japanese yen, traditionally that yen carry trade, you're gonna get a bid when fear comes in the market. Yen was making 20 year lows. The yen wasn't a safe haven either. Gold sucks as usual. Nope, you know, what else is new? Definitely nothing safe there. And where did, what did do well? The dollar. The dollar. Dollar was absolutely ripping. And then a funny thing happened in October, right? You got the, uh, what was it? The, uh, the, the Barons, was it Barons, right? With George Washington in a tank top, flexing his muscles, jumping out of a dollar bill. That was it. And then Bloomberg comes out, shout out Bloomberg, can't stop, won't stop on the U.S. dollar, like with these neon lights, like all psychedelic. The dollar had already peaked the week before. <laughs> it takes time to get all of the uh, cover art approved and whatnot. So the dollar had actually already peaked. And then what happened? Stocks absolutely ripped, absolutely ripped with the weaker dollar. And then once the dollar stopped falling, stocks stopped going up, right? The dollar bottomed. Check my math. I believe it was uh, July the 12th, July the 13th. That was the day the new 52-week highs list peaked. That was two months ago. People are like, oh, we're not in a correction because it hasn't fallen 10%. Are you out of your mind? We've been correcting for two months. We're in a correction, right? They, they happen. 
It's a thing. It, it's interesting. But I, I did lining up these sort of technical moves with the fundamentals. I, I did a piece a few months ago talking about the surprise impact on earnings. That I, when I did to look at the last sixty years of earnings, when the dollar was rising, earnings growth. So I'm looking at the last six months of the dollar's change and then the next six months of earnings. So when the dollar was rising, the average six-month forward earnings growth was literally zero. And then when the dollar was falling, the average six-month earnings growth was almost 7%. So it was like a 600 basis point spread. And that was for 60 years. The last 30, half of the period, the last 30 years, it was like a 900 basis point spread. So there was a smaller dollar move and a bigger impact on earnings. And it goes to your point, hey, we're becoming more multinational, more of our earnings coming abroad. I do think there is a, there's a real fundamental driver there in addition to anything else going on. Yeah, I mean, maybe. Um, I mean, I, I, sounds good, but I, I, I don't know. I, but I don't fair. know. Maybe, right? I believe you. But for me, the, the bigger thing is, you know, the dollar, there, there's no other safe haven. You're, you're not seeing it. Yeah. Right? You're seeing it in high yield credit when there's a real flight to safety. That's still there. If there's stress in the market, you're going to see it in credit. We're not seeing any stress in credit, by the way, right now. Um, and you're getting, and you're, you're getting, you're still getting that flight to staples and low volatility stocks. We're not getting that right now. I think that's information. It's 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 the dollar. So for me, when you look at the dollar and you look at rates, it's very simple. The rates situation in my opinion, does not determine the risk on or risk off as much as the dollar. For me, the rates situation is more of a sector rotation. So if rates are rising, you're going to get that outperformance out of the more value-oriented areas. You're seeing it in energy, financials, healthcare, uh, certain parts of healthcare anyway. You know, look at materials. You know, Berkshire Hathaway keeps going up, right? Like these are value-oriented areas that are going to outperform in a rising rate environment. In a rising rate environment, the growth stocks historically do terrible, right? And they and they're they're under pressure uh, with interest rates rising. So for me, that's the interest rate story. Which sectors are going to outperform? The risk on, risk off is the dollar. If the dollar's rallying, stocks in general are going to be under pressure. Uh, there's 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 no question uh, until proven otherwise. And all the market keeps doing is proving that that's right. Anybody who's fought that has has lost. Now, you mentioned gold has not been a great place to be defensive. Um, now, I'd say like with all the moving rates, you, you, you might think gold should be much, much lower given how yes. rates are doing. But let, let's go to commodities generally. You mentioned that there's some rotation in energy right now. What's the long-term trend on commodities versus the S&P, say? And how long do these trends last, in your view? You're just throwing me alley-oops today, Jerry. Yeah, you like, see, I'm following his Twitter feed. It's all stuff like, straight from his Twitter know, feed. Somebody's reading my <laughs> stuff, right? Somebody reads this stuff. Um, listen, you know, I will say that the fact that real, real yields have held up so well and gold's not getting crushed, you know, like gold's not going up. But, you know, you would think it'd be struggling a lot more. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you that one. Um, uh, as, as far as the, the trend in commodities, I almost treat gold like a currency. It's almost like not a commodity, right? It's like its own thing. You know, when I think commodities, I think base metals, energy, things like that. And uh, trends over, historically between stocks and commodities, when commodities are leaders and commodities are in favor and they're in a secular bull market, these trends don't just last a couple of years. They never have. They always last a decade, at least. So this one started in 2020, 
beautifully timed with crude oil literally trading below zero. Talk about like an epic end to a uh, secular bear market in commodities that lasted about a decade or so, right? And crude oil traded below zero. Then you got that initial ripper where everything energy just ripped off the lows. You had that digestion, that consolidation. And now it looks like we're resuming this trend. Uh, and if we're three years into this trend, we're maybe a third of the way there. So I think we have a long way to go. I don't know how high oil's gonna go. I have no idea. My suspicion is higher. But when, when I say oil 250, people laugh. People laugh. Um, and maybe oil never gets to 250, I have no idea. But as investors and a lot of financial advisors that deal with people's money and you know our own money and everything like that, I think we just need to keep in mind that that's on the table. Like we can't just say 250 never, never gonna happen. Maybe it never happens. But as investors, I think it's irresponsible to just completely take that off the table. I think it's entirely possible. And again, whether we get there or not is not the point. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Well, and you, you say you don't love hedging, you just like things that are going up. But oil and energy do, does seem, if, if inflation is the new concern and bonds aren't acting as the hedge that they used to, energy and commodities and oil offer a different hedge than they used to in, in the deflationary period and in the, in the falling commodity prices. Yeah, it's like when I buy Instacart because my wife spends so much money on the Instacart, it's like that. I'm hedging that situation. For sure. Yeah. So oil, you know, same thing. You're flying around, you're driving around, you know, if you own it, you know, sure. What do you think? So we talked a little bit about rates. The banks are one of the key questions, the regional banks. I still worry about the underlying drivers that they're not paying you the appropriate 5% rates on your money that you could be getting in treasuries. To me, they have a challenging profit dynamic looking ahead. But what do you, what do you see in the charts? There's probably way too many regional banks. You know, we had a few of them disappear that no one's really ever heard of. Remember, everyone was freaking out, like in the spring, banking crisis. I'm like, Who? I've never, Pacific West? I lived in the Pacific. <laughs> I never heard of this bank, you know? So, like, I remember one of these banks was like a billion dollars at the time. I think it was like First Republic or something, and it disappeared. I'm like, it's a billion dollar bank. It's gone today. Microsoft that day was up like 150 billion or something like that the same day. I'm like, we're sitting here talking about a billion dollar bank. This company over here is up 150 billion today, you know? So I think it's really about putting things in perspective. And when you look at European banks, European banks don't look terrible. European banks, remember those? Yeah. Usually like when things are, are, look terrible, they look the worst, right? Credit Suisse gone, nobody cares. Most of us were surprised it was still even around, right? <laughs> You know, some of these Europe, like that Zurich insurance company, some of these uh, European stuff, look at Indian uh, financials as well. So like, you know, you fundamental guys can tell me, you know, my, my fundamental story. friends tell me that they're the most expensive. The Indian banks, like on a multiple or whatever. Um, but, you know, they look, this, this just the, the price action alone. I mean, so there's some underlying strength underneath the surface that I think is getting ignored because of these little banks. But at the, at the high end level, you know, look at Berkshire Hathaway. It's the largest component of the U.S. financials index. So, so coming back to just wrapping up the big picture view, oh, we're stuck behead, b below overhead supply on some of the key areas. And those key areas you think are semis, home builders, tech. Yep, industrials. 
And until you break out, it could be a challenging dynamic. Sideways for longer. So the types of strategies that worked in the first half of the year are, are very different than the types of strategies that are working now. So we're putting on different types of trades. So like in the first half of the year, we weren't selling options at all because you weren't getting paid to. Volatility was super low. Stocks were trending higher. So just pick your favorite stock and buy a call option as far out as you can go. Easy, right? Keep it simple. In this environment, it's not like that. We're in a sideways range. So you're getting paid handsomely to sell premium, right? The buyers want to buy calls because they're super bullish. Give them to them. The sellers, everybody thinks they're going to go down and crash. They're buying puts, selling the puts too. Just make it rain, calls and puts all day long, right? And, And that's a strategy that's working very well now that... We weren't implementing in the first half because there's a time and a place for everything. And one thing I learned from Jeff DeGraff, in my opinion, one of the top technicians of all time, uh, one of my favorites, taught me very early in my career that the first thing we want to do is identify what type of market environment are we in and then decide which tools and strategies are best for that market versus the mistake most investors make is that this is my strategy. You know, when this line crosses that one, I buy it, you know, and then the, no, there's a time and a place. One day, gold's not going to suck. One day, interest rates are going to go down again. One day, the market's going to lose 20% in a month. There's a time volatility. You know, we are in a low, relatively low volatility environment historically, but we are higher volatility than we were, right? So everything's relative to where we were and adjusting accordingly. And the market's always changing. And if we don't adapt to the market environment, we're going to struggle. And, you know, you guys literally creating vehicles to express virtually any thesis in the market is a great value. Oh, I don't trade options. Okay. You don't trade options, but in certain market environments, options are a really good tool, you know, right? That was a great trade. pivot to uh, yeah. Matt's part of right. the conversation here. So Matt, look at right? beautiful, well done. Well beautiful done. transition. Uh, so Matt, tell us more about Halo. Tell us about the platform, what you guys do. What are the vehicles that we're talking about? If we're talking about these structured notes, uh, tell us a little bit more about what those are. Yeah, for sure. And JC, great, great intro. I, I definitely level set. I think, you know, understanding the macro view, the complexities of it, right? Uh, you know, just how, uh, you know, long-term trends play out, but they're short-term, right? Uh, but again, I would double down on just, you know, the behavior, right? The behavioral aspect of all this in terms of getting investors to do the right thing at the right time, uh, I think is hugely important. And so, yeah, taking a you know, quick step back, uh, Halo Investing uh, is a uh, financial technology marketplace uh, for advisors to purchase structured notes on behalf of their clients. And so you can come to the platform. We have about 30 uh, issuing banks that are available. Uh, you can really, uh, you know, as you mentioned, you can design the note uh, with index underliers, ETF, individual security underliers, um, and really uh, basically uh, with two, two key elements in mind. Do you want growth or do you want income associated with that, with that underlier? And so, uh, you know, again, the, the, regardless of the thesis, right, you can you know, come build, design, implement that strategy and structure. The structured note, I'm guessing many are very familiar, uh, but in its simplest form, right, is a zero coupon uh, corporate bond with a derivative basket attached to it. All right, you pick your underlier that, again, can be an index, it can be an ETF, individual, individual security, uh, set your upside participation, your downside risk. Uh, have it calculate you know, uh, income in the form of a coupon you know, based on some duration that you set. You mentioned there's these different types of notes. There's growth notes. There's income notes. 
with rates now five and a half percent in treasuries, are you seeing more interest in the growth note side of the business as sort of downside protection or people still doing income notes? What's the the appetite? Yeah. And again, that does speak to the flexibility as well. I think we saw, you know, um, 21, 22 uh, into early 2020. into early 2022, income notes were the rage, right? Yields were super high in these notes. Um, Still strong participation on the income side, but what we saw, right, is that as interest rates shifted and uh, uh, higher, uh, there was more interest in the growth note, uh, which again allows you to participate in the upside uh, of that underlier, typically an equity underlier, uh, but also have some downside risk mitigation to it as well. And so it allows you to, again, get into the market Right. If you see that trend, but you're not quite sure on the timing, uh, you know, if you have a client that is, uh, you know, has some trepidation, whether they're in the market or they're trying to figure out when to get in, uh, those growth notes became much more popular. Right. Just in terms of allowing individuals to become participants. Right. Which is obviously key, but still seeing a healthy balance. But again, a strong uptick in growth notes uh, here over the last 12 months. If you had to put a percentage, is there a rough percentage? Uh, rough percentage. It's probably right now, I'd say still at about half and half. Half and half. Yeah. Yep. Um, if you think about the, the challenges of structured notes in the traditional bank, you'll say you're at a mm-hmm. big wirehouse platform and, and you're dealing with sort of that bank's structured notes. Yep. W- what would you say the, the perception of notes are and how you try to address any of the key challenges that, that people have with that market? Yeah, for sure. And I think as a market, that's something we need to take you know head on, right? And I think you know, some of the key challenges just in terms of adoption is, you know, there certainly is, a, I'll just say a perceived complexity, right? With you know, anything that has that derivative component to it. But you know, back in the, the, the old days, you, you literally, if you, if you wanted to price up a note, you, you'd pick up the phone and you'd call the issuing bank and you'd call you know, five, six, seven of them trying to get a quote, trying to get the best quote, right? And you really didn't even understand by the time you got to the sixth, you know, was the first one still good, right? Uh, you know, just in terms of that process and infrastructure. And so uh, hard to, again, get quality pricing, uh, really, you know, not as competitive, right? You are going to a bank asking for a price. Uh, in addition to that, you know, these, it's a bond portfolio, right? There's life cycle to it, but there's more complexities just around, uh, you know, breaches that can happen at protection le- levels, uh, you know, callability of the notes themselves. And so there is, uh, you know, life cycle management uh, was a key element as well, just added to the complexity. And so many very sophisticated Excel spreadsheets, I'm still, I'm sure still exist out there to manage, you know, the life cycle of these things. And so, uh, you know, again, really, you know, just the, the trying to get a good price, life cycle management, you know, just the opacity of them, right? The transparency, the fees. You got it. Yep. And so really the, the whole idea of, of Halo and, and other structured note platforms was to really, you know, I hate using that word democratize. I'm going to, I was going to try and stay away from it, but there's really like basically create an infrastructure and system whereby you as an advisor now, right, can uh, you take control of that process, right? You go out, you design the structure, you bid that out, right? So in a, in a blind auction, you can go out to, all the issuers we have on the platform, you can select if you have certain credits, right, or certain banks that you have more confidence in. Um, you know, you can pick those banks. Uh, it's a blind auction. They come back with their best price, right? Whether it's a uh, participation rate on an underlier or the yield in an income note, um, basically you're you're forcing them, right, to compete, which again makes uh, you know the market as a whole more efficient, and I feel you know, better for the investor, which is. You know, absolutely imperative to you know to broader adoption. How big is that market right now? 
so uh, issuance uh, in the U.S. in uh, in 2023 will be about 100 billion in issuance. And it's actually, it's, I'll be honest. In new issuance this year? In issuance this year, yeah. Wow. 100 billion. But honestly, you think about that, low relative to the capital markets, Nothing. still incredibly small. Yeah. Uh, usage of these products, XUS, is significantly higher. Europe, it's 4X, Asia, even a bit more. And it's really, quite honestly, if you think about it, the only product uh, in the market that uh, has that same uh, phenomenon, right? Where there's less adoption in the US than broader. Uh, and so, um, yeah, and you know, so we you, we got into this business quite frankly uh, to you know, mission of the firm is to pre- protect the world's investments. We want to take that hundred billion dollar market and obviously expand it significantly, but very appropriately, right? And what is the total assets now? You think total assets uh, you know, globally? Uh, uh, well, uh, I think uh, you know, in terms of total issuance outstanding right now uh, in the U.S., I think it's about two and a half. Uh, uh, is that right? Two and a half trillion. Wow. In outstanding. Uh, no, that's that. Yeah, two and a half trillion globally uh, in outstanding wow. issuance today. Wow. Right. So there's and a those mature as an update mature every few years. Yeah. So but that's, that's globally. Fine. U.S. It's probably wow. you know a fraction a fraction of that. Sure. So, yeah. And and your your target market for users of Halo mm-hmm. is the, the RIA community. So yeah, RA community, but it really, you know, again, any advisor that is working with a client uh, that again, uh, you know, wants to ensure that you know, clients get invested, stay invested. And so we started. You know, our focus was in the independent RA channel. Uh, you know, again, I think uh, you know, great tool to be used when building and managing portfolios. And so uh, many of them came out of wires, right? Breakaways uh, that were used to the structure itself. Uh, but uh, we're looking for better infrastructure uh, that they now no longer had when they when they moved into that independent space. And so started with them and that quickly expands into RIAs that you know became affiliated with those note users beginning to spread the word. But I would say, you know, this year so far, half of the advisors that are using notes uh, on our platform had never used a note before. And so education, engage field engagement uh, is critically important, right? To make sure they're used again the the right way. I mean, we I, I see in the ETF market, which I operate in on a daily basis, mm-hmm. like one of the in terms of the top inflows towards ETFs is these option oriented yep. covered call type strategies, these buffer protection mm-hmm. type strategies. Yep. There's been a lot of interest in trying to take some of the quote unquote pain off of owning the the markets if it's viewed as well, you know, there's more risk. Absolutely. Yeah. So you're seeing the buffered ETFs, uh, which, you know, again, is another vehicle that we do a lot of work just in terms of helping advisors evaluate and recommend. Um, you know, that's more of a perpetual product. Right. And so, you know, with that, you, you do have to give up a little bit of the flexibility just in terms of, you know, honing in that specific note to your specific client. But uh, we're actually excited about uh, the you know, the growing uh, you know, uh, interest in those. Uh, again, I think good product on the protective investment uh, investment side. But I also do think it'll encourage more advisors that may be interested in those to, to take a look at the notes and, and what they might be able to offer as well. So w- one of the things I, I mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to have some breaking news about Wisdom Tree and Halo collaborating. Um, so we do have sort of an announcement. We uh, t- talk a little bit about we're working on a joint model. So you have a model marketplace mm-hmm. that you've developed where people have been buying individual notes. Yep that they would have to then go customize their terms. They could put it out to auction and get the bids from all these different banks. But you're trying to provide a more cohesive solution, sort of model portfolios, not have a single 
S&P 500 or NASDAQ or whatever, but actually have a full global type asset allocation solution. We've got a few model providers. We're going to be one of them now on the platform. Talk a little bit about your goals with this model market center and how you're thinking about going from a single note towards a portfolio of notes. Yeah, no, absolutely. And super excited. And, and you're really appreciative of the, of the partnership here. And so, you know, as Jeremy mentioned, uh, we are launching a uh, note SMA uh, portfolio uh, with Wisdom Tree. T- taking a big step back, I, I you know, spent a lot of my career at Ibbotson Associates Wilshire and, and most recently at Morningstar, uh, all with a focus on you know, helping advisors build better portfolio solutions for their end clients. You're really focusing on that end investor and, and the goals and the outcomes that they that they really seek. And so, uh, you know, don't want to give too much of the biography or autobiography, whatever you might say. But you know, joined Halo. You got got interested in the mousetrap, right? The note. You know, I'd built glide paths. I'd built diversified model portfolios and, and helped drive them. You know, through you know through ad- advisor adoption. And really came to appreciate the structure itself, right? Uh, and in addition to that, again, had always been very interested in help, trying to help advisors scale their practice in a way that, again, aligns with their investment philosophy, their investment approach, uh, but leveraging third-party expertise, right? whether it was our own or other third parties like Wisdom Tree and other model providers. And so, when I got to Halo, just you know, realized there's an incredible intersection that's available, right? And so. In terms of model adoption, you know, adoption of ETF or mutual fund-based model portfolios or other SMA strategies, again, that kind of that point of entry issue becomes very uh, difficult, right? How do you get the investor to transition from where they are today into the market? Uh, and so, with that, uh, we've decided that uh, you know, building uh, uh, note-based SMAs is a great way to bolt on, right, to that core portfolio allocation. And so, you know, um, really, what what does that mean, right? And so, we partner up with investment experts, uh, in this case, Wisdom Tree, right, to provide their guidance, right, just around your know, asset allocation policy, current market conditions, right. Where are we, right, in the midst of those trends, and identify uh, key elements of growth, right? How should we be allocating to certain asset classes in the market? Uh, but with downside protection, or where are there opportunities for income, right? So to translate that equity exposure into a secured income stream. And so, again, typically as an advisor, you would have to go into our platform and decide which underliers do I want to choose, what durations, how do I want to set protection levels. Uh, And the SMA does all of that for you, right? In partnership with Wisdom Tree, we build a portfolio of those notes, and we manage that portfolio of notes ongoing uh, for you as an advisor. So you get the exposure to those notes and, and all that they can offer, uh, but the life cycle is is fully managed, again, for you as a trusted partner uh, and outside expert. In, in the infrastructure, for us, we've been seeing that trend in ETF world, where model portfolios is something we've been doing a lot more with, putting models on the major platforms, building our own implementation uh, through adhesion and, and some other sort of customizable models. And this is so neat, this is an exciting new asset class of bringing the structured notes in a package that you're not just having to buy a single one, you get the full view. Absolutely, right? And it comes down to right, defining the outcome. Yeah, I think all of you out there in the audience that are advisors spend a lot of time working with individual clients to lay out the plan, right? And I totally agree with your comment earlier, right? You can't just buy the strategy and say, yeah, you know, you, you just yeah, keep on pressing ahead. 
And, and again, that's where we think that, uh, you know, attaching that, that SMA right, that aligns in this case with, with the model you know, is a really good way to, again, um, you know, uh, voice more of your near-term view, right, on where you see the market going. Uh, but again, maintain, though, that core, right? It, 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 it allows you to create a baseline, let's call it, right, strategy and allocation. Uh, but again, get that individual that may trust and love the plan, but it you know, comes back with, ah, you know, I'm just not sure if the timing's right. Like, where are we in these cycles? Um, you know, it, it allows you to, again, get them to participate into the market uh, you know, when they might not, right? And then- the- I think it's a great complement to a lot of other things that we do as investors. Absolutely. That, yeah. that is so key. And I will say that, right? It is not the sledgehammer to I'm not getting nail. paid for this, by the yeah, way. Uh, yeah. It's true, though. Yeah. It's yeah. True. Just met JC today. So, yeah, appreciate that. No, I, and I agree with you. And, and I do think that's actually hugely important, right, in terms of usage and adoption and not to go back to your, your points around some of the challenges, you know, earlier in their, you know, in their uh, use. But, uh, you, again, it's not a sledgehammer to every nail. It's a great compliment. It's another tool in the toolkit. Uh, again, with the focus on driving towards a defined outcome, right, that should be attached to some goals that that individual has laid out. Uh, but again, just another tool in the toolkit to get them in the market. Uh, and then as importantly, right, give them the confidence that once they're in, right, that protection, right, or that income stream that they have, um, you know, will again, you know, allow them to, you know, uh, to, to stay invested comfortably. I, I come back to thinking where we are in the market dynamic and coming back to where are expected returns? We sort of had this conversation on stage yesterday with Pisani moderating the panel, and, and where are we with the S&P? So at 20 times earnings, forward earnings are at a 5% earnings yield, which is what we often talk about is sort of the real return indicator. So maybe it's a 7 to 8% nominal return. This is a Siegel, classic Jeremy Siegel, how do I come up with return expectations for the S&P? So 7 to 8% for the S&P over, let's call it the next seven years. Um, then you look at the Bond rates, all right, so the tips yields at 2% long-term. You got the cash rate at 5.5%, which is basically saying there's no way this 5.5% is going to stay here this, this long. But talk about the income levels you could get off of a income note, what it looks like. If you think about 7 to 8% as your S&P that has all the risk of an S&P 500, maybe talk through the dynamics of what an income note looks like and yeah. and what's available what are the different risk considerations when you build that type of income note yeah so you know it, it, you know again they're going to wear very daily right so we want to you know big, with all the you know the caveats that come along with it we want to make sure that you know that we uh yeah that we look at it actually you know it's interesting we just priced out i mean i think you know we're in the in the model right we're targeting and this is a more of a let's use an actual example if that's okay right so the the uh, the income model that uh, that uh, we're uh, you're building out uh, with Wisdom Tree, it's targeting about you know let's call it a seven to nine percent yield, right? So I think right now, based on the notes that we're pricing up, uh, this is a diversified portfolio equity portfolio. It's about eight and a quarter uh, is the is the current yield there on that strategy. And that's like a global allocation. It's like mm-hmm. a seventy thirty yep. U.S foreign mix it sort of represent it recognizes the home country bias that everybody here has as globally minded we think we are 60 40 is about where you would be on acqui but that's right most people are not there um in in terms of their their baseline so it's built with that in mind but seven to nine percent is interesting now what are the trade-offs you get when you make that type of allocation so you're locking in that yield right so what you're doing in the income side right and we'll talk about the growth side in a moment but in the income side right you're basically you're you're locking in that yield so right you're giving up 
right? The upside, potential upside participation, right? There is no free lunch, right? You hear that all over the place. And so basically what you're doing is you're, you're basically trading off the upside participation in those same under, equity underliers, right? You know, for that, uh, for that, uh, you know, that uh, income yield of, of, of eight and a quarter percent. Right? So. And when do you lose the coupon? Yeah, so it, it varies, right? So you set a coupon protection level, right? So, uh, you know, you'll, we'll see, you know, again, this, this will vary over time based on pricing. But, uh, you know, you, uh, typically, I think in terms of the, the model that we're, uh, that we're building out, uh, you're looking at you know, uh, protection levels on the coupon of 20%, right? So you keep that coupon until, you know, the, the, the underlier itself, you know, breaks through that, that 20%, uh, that, that 20% downside. And sort of similar on the growth side. So you yeah. basically so describe. So if you, if the you're going to keep a seven to nine percent coupon, if mm-hmm. as long as the underliers, whether it's S and P and Nasdaq, yep. mid caps or EFA are merging, mm-hmm. how's the terms typically look on these customized equity baskets for growth notes? Yeah. So you're seeing on the on the growth side. So again, like the difference there, right? So you're maintaining equity exposure on the growth side uh, with some upside participation and, uh, you know, uh, and you can really price that out any way you want. And so we're, you know, we're targeting protection levels and this is a pretty wide range from 10 to 50%. So all that means is that uh, you, in the case of, you know, the, the note, uh, if your note uh, returns between zero and let's say at a 20% protection level, zero and negative 20%, you know, at maturity, you're paid back your principal, right? So you're, you're basically, you're buffered, right? Uh, for that first 20%. Uh, if it breaks through that, you know, in the case of hard protection, you know, 21% down, you're only losing 1%, right? Um, but you, you, we're pricing up these notes, right? It is a bond, right? So there's duration, right? So you're, again, you're, uh, you're investing uh, to maturity over that, you know, over that period of time. Um, uh, but you can have uncapped participation, right? Uh, and so you can actually get full participation in the, in the upside. Uh, obviously, there's the protection on the downside, what are you giving up, right? There's, you know, you're basically buying that bond, right? This, this is where the complexity is. This yeah. hard and soft yeah. protection. There's yeah. different terms yeah. or different there maturities. A second, there's a secondary market for it, too. There is a secondary market, for sure. And, and the secondary market is getting better, right? So you know, just to, to, to kind of lay it out, uh, the issuing bank is required, right, to provide a daily mark. And so there is liquidity, right? Now, we would say you, if you're buying the note, you should buy it with the intention of holding that note to maturity, right? That should be, uh, you know, should be the case. However, uh, you know, just if market conditions uh, uh, dictate uh, and you do want to to exit that note, you can you can sell you it. You can in also the scoop them up on the cheap, right? You can, yeah, absolutely. We're seeing you know more interest, quite frankly, in in uh, advisors or other asset managers in you know, beginning to participate in that in that. In times market. of stress, you can go shopping on some interesting stuff. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So at a minimum, people should check out the model center to be watching for those bids. So advisors can bid from other advisors selling notes. You can. It's it's not a very mature market. I would say just you know, just again full disclosures, right? You know the the you know, the typical sale is the note back to the issuing bank. However, there is you know we can you know we can uh, connect you know advisors with with other you know sources of liquidity in the market. Right. I think there's work to do there, quite frankly, uh, just to be, you know, again, uh, you know, it, it's an industry that's growing. It's evolving quickly. I think there's definitely more access we can provide uh, to those secondary markets. But uh, but it's there. It's there if you need it. So, you know, you mentioned, yeah, the the the, the you know, soft and hard protection. And again, there's just there is a lot of complexity. And so the one thing I would just say is and that's really, you know, a, a driver in partnerships like like the one with Wisdom Tree is, 
uh, start simple, right? You know, align with broad-based equity indexes. You know, uh, focus on you know again uh, you know, simple protection levels, uh, simple protection uh, inputs as well. Uh, but you know, yeah, we could talk all day just around uh, you know the various uh, you know forms of of notes, uh, whether it's payout, participation, protection, duration, uh, all of the above. So on SiriusXM where we are live, we can take calls. I usually don't do calls <laughs> for my show, but but Guy Adami and uh, has started a call-in show on our on our channel so they are taking calls uh, all the time but we here at the conference future proof you can do slido you have questions for jc for matt you want to get involved in the conversation put up your questions here in slido or you could also just shout out your questions but um, the old-fashioned way old Remember right? we did that? yeah we got a question in the audience the question of the, the correlation between the dollar and the 10-year what, what do we think about that yeah for for me the 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 implications of the moves in yields are more from a sector rotation perspective is really how I look at it. You know, these rising yields uh, will likely put pressure on growth and technology like we saw last year uh, if yields are going to rise. Um, and I think the dollar is more of the, the risk off scenario. Right. So, you know, yields, rising yields gives the market sort of a risk off tilt because of the massive exposure that S&Ps have to growth. Uh, but I think the real the real flight to safety the market keeps proving is the dollar. It's not a coincidence that the day that the dollar bottomed was the day the new 52-week highs list peaked. That was two months ago. Question from the audience. Talk about structured outcome ETFs compared to notes. Yeah, I think you just the you know, in, in, for the sake of time, I think the 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 real at the core right is the perpetual nature of the ETF, right? And so you don't have a duration, right? And so you have those same, you know, those protection layers, but they roll, right? And so, right, uh, so with that, you know, basically you're um, you're giving up, right, some of the ability to customize whether it's duration or downside, right, uh, uh, protection within the two. And so at its simplest, right, think of the ETF as a perpetual instrument. Uh, as opposed to the note, which has a finite duration, right? And you can manage that, you know, you can basically ladder ladder the notes. That's what many advisors do, right? To to create, again, a diversified portfolio of notes, whereby, again, because there's a lot of different buffers, right? So we don't, we, we're not going to have time to go into all of them, but ETF has a single objective, which is great, you know, very important and appropriate, single objective, perpetual in nature. And so, you know, relative to the note, which allows you to customize that, uh, you know, that exposure at a very detailed level. Well, this has been a special live broadcast of Behind the Markets here from Future Proof. I'd like to thank our guests, JC Pretz, All Star Charts, Matt Rogowski from Halo. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.